Welcome to the Engaged Midwife Podcast. This is Missy. And this is Kara. And today we're joined by the newest of the delivered faculty, Amy Palmer. Say hi, Amy. Hi. How is everyone this morning? The coffee has not yet hit my bloodstream. No, but we all have a nice warm cup in hand and we're ready to chat this morning. Welcome to season three. Can you believe we've made it through two whole seasons as a podcast? Yeah, it seems like we just started yesterday, but it also seems like we've been doing this forever. It's true. So what's new with everybody? What are, what's up this week? Well, I think I'm most excited that we're in Navarre Beach, Florida, which will be the site of our um, exam prep workshop coming next March, which is called Relaxed. And it'll be really fun. It's been nice to be here. We've gotten a lot of work done, but also just such a beautiful site. We've just been imagining sort of what that's going to look like when it's the place is like flooded with students and we're doing prep and like eating and learning and living life together for a week. And just being here with you guys. So also knowing that our students can do that, being around other midwives is always really nice to fill up the cup. Yeah, super cool. So new product launch this week with the new learning management system for Delivered. So for those of you students who are looking to prep, we've got new products up and coming. So that's something to look forward to. Um, And you can follow us on our social, either on Facebook or Instagram to get those links. So today, what do you want to talk about girls? I think we should talk about finding your first job, starting as a midwife in practice. Oh my gosh. And all the crazy things that go with that. Yeah. Like how to make sure you don't get taken advantage of. Yeah. And, you know, it's been a while since we found our first jobs. Um, (laughs) But I think, you know, throughout our careers, it's kind of similar each time you want to find your next new job, (laughs) you start the whole process over. Exactly. That is so true. You, you feel like, oh, I have to do this all over again, even though I've been in a job for six years. Um, So been there, done that. But you also learn, I think a lot of things from those experiences like my first job, I was like, I don't care what you make me do. I just want to deliver babies. Right. And I don't care what you pay me. I don't care what you pay me. <laughs> Which and is it, so not the approach you should take. No, no. And, the, mm-hmm. and I will tell you now, when I look back, I'm like, I could have made more as a nurse Very than I true. made in my first midwifery job. Yeah. You don't want to sell yourself um, to be able to do something you love. You really need to advocate for yourself. Yeah. So don't do what Missy did. Or don't Kara, do what Amy did. Or Amy. <laughs> Mine was pathetic. Learn I don't even want to tell you what I mean. It was really, it ridiculous was really ridiculous in terms of what we, what we, made my about. first paycheck was less than my RN paycheck. Yeah. So don't do that. Yeah. No, we'll talk about all those things. So I think we'll start the conversation with like graduating, getting a license, getting your national certification. Sounds great. Uh, so the first thing that I think of, like I tell students all the time is like, you can always send your application to the board in early to certify, to certify when that happens, you have the opportunity to fill out your application, send it into um, AMCB. And it basically sits there until you graduate and your program director then sends your certifying letter that says, yes, you've graduated and you've met competency and you can sit for your board exam. Yeah. And really everything else needs your certification in place. And so that is the first step. I agree. Yes. And national certification, after you take your boards and you're successful, comes through pretty quickly. AMCB processes uh, um, certification for um, students a couple of times a week. So you're not waiting around for your national certification. 
What I find the time limiting step is, is with your state board. Right. And it could be as quickly as like a week or two. I've seen it take a month or two Mm -hmm. to get the licensure to go through. And if you're, it's the first time you're getting an advanced practice um, license, it generally takes longer. They have to do all your educational verification, be prepared to have transcripts for every school you've ever went to. Mm -hmm. So if you were, for example, an ABN nurse and went back and got a BSN and then got a master's, you need to be prepared to have transcripts for all of your nursing programs to send to your board. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, it's so important that Depending on the state, most places I've been, you have to have your registered nurse Mm -hmm. licensure in place first, and then your advanced practice is on top of that. In some places, you might be with the Board of Medicine or a Board of Public Health, and so it's not always the nursing board, which is a little bit different as well. Key takeaway from this is know what state you think you want to work in or be licensed in. And just understand what their licensure requirements are so that you're well prepared. It's always a matter of like printing off all the forms or bookmarking the forms online so you know what you need to fill out and knowing what you can do in advance versus um, what you have to wait to do after you get your certification. Agreed. Agreed. And then from there, so then once you're certified and you're licensed in your state, some of the other things that typically come after that. I would say are once you're actually in a practice site. So like your DEA license or your liability insurance or some of those different things, you don't want to pay for those out of pocket generally. And so I would want my practice to pay for those things. Yeah. So whatever you can wait for once you get a job. definitely. And part of this is all of these things can be happening while you're also interviewing for jobs. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you want to talk about like looking for your job? I always like to start this conversation with there's no such thing as a perfect first job. It may look perfect as you're seeing it on paper, but there will be things about it that you'll be like, oh, I wouldn't do this again, or I wouldn't do that again. Maybe we should start with timing of looking for that job. And then we'll go to like what you should look for in a practice and questions to ask. Does that sound good? Yep. So timing is always an interesting question because I think some people think, oh, I'm going to, I just need to get through graduation. I just need to get certified and then I'll start to look where I've known students that have started as early as a year before graduation, Mm -hmm. six months before graduation. And actually for as long as it takes to get everything in place, that's not a bad idea. Yes, it definitely does take a long time to get things in place. So you you interview and and you've gotten a job offer and then it literally can take anywhere from three months to nine months to actually get in there and actually hit the ground running and deliver babies and, and be in the office. So um, the timing can be frustrating. It can be um, very long and you feel like you're never, ever going to work. But um, it does. A lot of that is all credentialing and insurances and um, hospitals, which um, sometimes don't work uh, very quickly, they'll meet once a month. So if you miss that month, then you're waiting for a whole nother month again. So um, that can be frustrating, but just hang in there because that is um, that's, it's always all worth it. That's kind of funny because while there's so many differences across every state and different cities and locations, that is one thing that is true across the board. Mm-hmm. Hospitals move very slowly. very slowly. And if you miss that month and you're, you're not their priority to get you in that position. So um, that'll be the bottom of their board meeting list. Also, that doesn't mean if you're a student and you're listening to this, that you're behind. 
everybody's process looks mm-hmm. a little different. I graduated from midwifery school in December. I had a job in academia, but did not have my eye on a practice job at all because I hadn't boarded yet. And um, I wasn't even thinking after I graduated about a midwifery job right away. Something just actually, funny enough, landed in my lap um, by word of mouth. But you're not behind if you're a student and you haven't even thought about a job yet. And, um, and that's okay. I had been working on it the whole probably last six months of school and particularly in integration, trying to build, but I was in an area where midwifery wasn't the standard. It wasn't normal. And so I was laying a lot of groundwork, but similar to you, Missy, I was wrapping up my first trimester of pregnancy as I graduated. And so I wasn't actively looking for a job right then either. And I think I started in my practice, um, about 11 months after graduation. So the timeline can look different for everyone. Yeah. Amy, what was your experience? I graduated in May and I was working in October, um, crazy enough because, um, I had this physician, (laughs) um, tell me that he was going to, and he did help. He helped pay for the end of my program, um, and helped with everything. So we had kind of everything, rolling as far as I already had my RN license. I had it all. Everything was good to go. And um, the credentialing didn't take, it was a very small community hospital, didn't take very long either. Um, But I was the first midwife there. So that was kind of fun. Um, I made my own privileges up uh, that I had taken from um, a friend of mine that had um, done the same thing. And she had been the only midwife and we talked about privileges and made our privileges together. So mine was fairly quick not like that in most places, but just, I think it was because it was a small community hospital and um, they were just, they just kind of let me run the show at first um, to see what I needed. Yeah. I started in my practice, I think in May and didn't start catching babies with full privileges until October. So even being licensed, being certified, having all the credentialing for insurance in place, it was the credentialing to catch babies Mm -hmm. in the hospital. And that was at a practice where they'd had midwives for years. Mm -hmm. So it just is a slow process. Yeah. That's a, it's a good point to make too, that you can't expect that your first day you're going to be like doing things on your own or even, um, like catching babies at all. So depending on where you work and what hospital you're at, if you're a new grad, there's likely a certain number of births that you'll have to have that are proctored. Mm -hmm. Even when I just started in my new practice, I had to have a certain number of births that were proctored before they would let me practice on my, like, um, actually, you know, attend births on my own. And so that can be frustrating, but also it's really for your own good and your own safety so that your supervising docs in your hospital feel comfortable with you. Um, and then you have some underneath your belt with, with some backup if you needed it. Yeah. And I've heard anywhere from like five to 20. Mm -hmm. So I think the number can 25, even we have a new grad right now and her number's 25. Wow. Yeah. She's only just graduated in February. So they really wanted to make sure she had a lot of deliveries under her belt before she was fully privileged. And that helps build your confidence, but it also helps your physician collaborators feel more comfortable with your practice. They trust it builds trust. It also helps the patients feel comfortable as well. So we might even teach them something when they're in watching yes. our birth. <laughs> I like to do that. It's interesting. I did a birth with our new grad a few months ago and I had a really beautiful repair and like one to do. And I, the patient was a nurse and I just said, Hey, 
I just want, you know, my other midwife to watch this repair. Do you care if we video it so she can watch it again? You know, so she feels really comfortable. And so she was, my patient was all in. And so that was so nice, but yeah, you do get an opportunity to teach too, especially she was brand new at the time and hadn't yeah. even done any of her own. Oh, I was talking about teaching the physicians oh, like when they're watching too. us. Oh, I like that <laughs> yeah. 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 About why we do things and why we don't. Yeah. So let's back up. Okay. We got a little like in the weeds about like what happens when we start working and how that can be um, interesting in terms of supervision. But let's talk about the things that we, that, that students and new grads should look for that we feel like are really important for like job success. Yeah. I think you need to have a list of those things that are absolute, like I need this in the practice I'm going to go to. And maybe those things that would mark it off the list. Like I clearly don't want to go there. For me, it was, I needed to join a practice with other midwives. I did not want to be a solo provider in a practice. I also now in my life don't want to be the first of anything like the first midwife, like we're bringing you in to build something. Um, it comes with a set of problems that at this point in my career, I'm not willing to tackle and, or there's just better uses of my time. Sure. I would agree with you. It's hard to be a pioneer. Um, And I do think that there are midwives out there who want to do that and need to do that. I just think you need to be prepared for what that looks like when you're the first of something. There are a lot of barriers to being the first of something. Yeah. So similar to wanting to join a group practice, I wanted to have other midwives to bounce ideas off of. I wanted to share call. That was really important. Uh Um, You know, particularly in my childbearing years. Um, But also that you're not alone in trying to build something. So, so let's talk about that call thing. Yeah. Right. So I think what you are envisioning your perfect midwifery job to be likely will not be a reality with your first job. And I think there are things you have to like recognize and call is a big thing. Like, are you only going to be expected to take X number of hours of call a week and X number of weekend call? And if you do that, what does that mean for your patients? if you are not there or there's not another midwife there and are you willing then to also make yourself available for your own patients? So these are all things you have to think through as you're negotiating or looking for your first job. Also with call, are you taking call just for your midwife practice group of patients or are you taking first call for all the physician patients as well? I've certainly known a lot of practices where the midwives did all the triaging and managing all normal labor that was overnight or weekends. Um, But I would prefer to be in a practice where it was the midwife patients. I had an established relationship with them. I knew them. They, you know, were shared amongst all the midwives, that kind of idea. So it can depend what your call looks like on how many patients you're covering. Yes. Um, And one thing that uh, Missy and I were talking about the other day is post-call. So office um, after after being on call all night and maybe being up all night and not sleeping or multiple phone calls where you slept very broken. Um, so think about that type of thing. Uh, those are the questions that you kind of want to ask on what my call schedule is going to be like. If I have one piece of advice for any new grad or, um, you know, student who's looking for a job is never allow them to talk you into doing post-call office. 
I, and my, I've never done it before. And in my current practice, they were like, we really need a midwife in the office on this day. And I'm like, that's my post-call day. And they were like, well, you can start your office at seven as soon as your call is over and be done at two. But I will tell you 95% of the time I'm up all night with calls or I'm up all night with labor support, or I'm up all night delivering babies or in triage. And my office day is miserable. I, I, I'm on call for 24 hours. I do eight hours post office call. I get home. And after 36 hours, I'm brain dead. It takes me two days to recover from feeling like I have been up. And I don't think it's the safest way to do your schedule. A safety is a key there. Very important. So your brain's not functioning. You're not thinking clearly you're sleep deprived and providing care. So safety is um, definitely the issue there too. Also, I think there's a sort of an illusion that we have a charmed life of being midwives. And I think when you really dig in and you think about call schedules, like we take a lot of call and it's not as glamorous as one might think it's going to be. And I just want students and new midwives to really consider like how much call they're willing to take, but also in respect to who your partners are, right? And how much call are we taking across the group? And trusting one of Amy and I are old practice partners and you'll probably hear a lot about that in future episodes, but we always knew that we had to trust that if we had to leave and be off call, that our midwife partners were going to come in and take over for us and give the same kind of care that we would give so that we don't have to overextend ourselves in a situation where we needed our patients to have a midwife. I agree a hundred percent in our midwife practice. We kind of had a rule amongst ourselves that we wouldn't special anyone and come in specifically for them because we needed to be able to trust. And we also needed to protect our home lives. And it, it was an understanding amongst all of us, which is really important. The flip side to this though, is the work-life balance is so important. Mm -hmm. Um, but you also have to recognize that. And I think Amy and Kara will agree with me is when you became a midwife, you're really, you're married to your, your partner and your, and your family and your friends, but you're kind of married to this job too. A hundred percent, hundred percent. And you feel a sense of commitment to people and patients. Um, and, and it puts up, sometimes it's a burden, right? Where you think like, gosh, I'm missing this, this, and this, but I think our partners and our families and our friends understand all of that. And then our patients also will understand that. So I think, you know, coming out of school is like, oh, I would love to have this job where I'm in the office for two days and I'm on call for one day. And, you know, I only have to do every 10th weekend or something crazy like that. But that's not really the reality of what midwife life is. Right. Agreed. And to speak to some of you pioneers out there that that's uh, what I was and all of my jobs was the first midwife everywhere. Um, and if that's what you need to be and that's what you want to be, and maybe that's why you went to school because you need to bring midwifery to your community that doesn't have it. Um, so make sure that that work-life balance is there for you, even though, you know, you have to take care of yourself. Like we all know we take care of ourselves before we can take care of others. So make sure that um, you remember that part and not try and kill yourself or your community. Um, Cause I am guilty of that in my very, actually my first job and my second job. So um, it's, it's important to realize that you can't save everything and can't save everyone, but be a pioneer in your own way, but take care of yourself while doing it. 
So we've talked a little about schedule. What other things should be important for them as they look for a new job, like their first jobs? I think the next thing I have, oh, I'm sorry, Amy. I think of like the practice characteristics. So is it going to be a OB only position where as a midwife, you're just seeing tons of new OBs and return OBs and not really getting to do any GYN or well woman care, that sort of thing that can look different than if you're in a like full scope, true full scope practice where you see across the board and build those relationships with teenagers up through all those years and maybe catch their babies. So what, you know, what, what kind of patients are you going to see? And I think the mix for, of providers for me is also something that I'm like, Hey, are there other advanced practice providers in the hospital, like in the practice? So are there other midwives? Are there WHMPs? Are there FNPs? Are there PAs? Like, what is the mix? I always feel like, um, the practice I have felt most supported in, in my career was one that had nurse practitioners, midwives, and PAs working with physicians. They just had a really strong advanced practice um, sort of foundation that made it feel like a really nice place to work. I think the providers is definitely key, but also um, the staff that you're working with who, because they're your daily, they're, they're going to be there every day, day in, day out. They get to know you. You get to be, I mean, I have some of my best friends are the medical assistants and nurses that I worked with in the offices. Um, So the staff is important. The dynamics of the unit, uh, the RNs that you're working with, um, the whole, the whole gamut of the hospital itself too. Um, What's the hospital system like? Is it this big, huge hospital system that spans across counties or is it a smaller community hospital? Um, so, and those are the types of things you kind of have to think about what you want to be in and are you going to be, are you want to be in a bigger one or do you want to be in a smaller community? So I think it's easy when you interview for jobs to be like laser focused on what you say when you meet with your physicians and then being like, oh, it's so nice that I get to tour the hospital or that I get to meet with the staff. But I think sometimes those meetings are more important. I know my very, this last job that I took, like being on labor and delivery and talking to the nurses and having them ask me questions so they felt comfortable and talking to the manager on labor and delivery about sort of how I practice and what that looks like in terms of staff was also really important. So don't discount some of those opportunities that you have to meet with different people in the system besides just your physician colleagues. I mean, it can be as simple. I'm thinking of, do they have peanut balls? Do they have birth balls? Do they have, have they ever seen the squat bar for their bed? Mm -hmm. Do they have telemetry monitoring? You know, some of those different things would be nice to know. And you're not probably going to get those answers from the physicians that you're interviewing with. So I agree with you. The labor and delivery culture and staff is really important. You want to talk about physician support and what that looks like when you're meeting with docs. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) We're all like, Oh, well, so my first job, I was fortunate that it was um, the practice that I had done most of my clinical time in as a student. And so I knew some of their quirks and I had seen my faculty and preceptors interact with those physicians. So I knew them well. Um, that can be nice because you come in with that prior knowledge and it's not blind, but if you go in and just interview with a place, you haven't met those providers before. I think there's some really important things you would want to know about the physician support and collaboration. 
One of my first questions is, have you ever worked with midwives? Yes. I find that to be really telling um, in terms of what their support has looked like. But I also don't think that that is a rate limiting step. Right now, I work with a physician that's never worked with midwives, and she's wildly supportive and amazing. Um, whereas some of the other docs in our practice have worked with midwives and their opinions are different. Mm -hmm. So I just think like, what is their willingness to work collaboratively? Yeah. You make a good point there, Missy, because if they have, if they have worked with midwives, maybe that, maybe that, uh, they have a a very skewed type of opinion because maybe the, it was, are seeing things in a different life in midwifery practice. I think so often in interviews, um, as the midwife, people are asking you, what is your vision? What could you bring to our practice? What would you want to change? Those kinds of things. And I think it's just as important the questions you ask them. So you guys have raised some really good ones, but recently, you know, asking, what do you see as the future for this midwife practice? Where would you like to see it five years from now? That kind of idea can tell you a lot as well. Mm-hmm. The idea too of, do you have a defined set of expectations of what you want the midwives in your practice to do? I am finding that it's really hard to be like, okay, we don't have a defined list of what just the docs are going to do or just the midwives are going to do. And that makes it, there's a lot of gray area that as a midwife, I don't feel comfortable with. And I think like establishing those things when you're interviewing is important. Like are you going to want us to assist on your sections? Are you going to want us to take care of any high-risk patients? Who's doing triage? Who should we refer and on a call or in the middle of the night to a doc? Like those kinds of things. Like, do they have those kinds of guidelines? Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. And it's so important to know, how do you want me to communicate with you? You know, like, mm-hmm. are you guys typically like texting? Is it a phone call? Is it when I need you, you'll come sit on the unit with me? Mm-hmm. Or are you strictly just taking call from home? Those kinds of things can be really important. Components of like contracts. What kinds of things are we thinking of that might be on the checklist for new grads when they're looking for a job? So malpractice insurance is one. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a really great webinar that's posted um, about like what what the different kinds of malpractice insurance are, but whatever that is that the hospital provides for you or the practice provides for you, make sure you understand it. Um, limits are usually 1 million, 3 million. That's a pretty standard limit for malpractice for advanced practice providers, but also understand that if you leave that practice, do they cover your tail? Uh-huh. I was just going to say, that's one of the most important things uh-huh. is I want to know the practice is going to pay for the tail when I leave. And a uh-huh. tail coverage means if you were to be sued for something that happened while you were employed there, um, after you leave that they're going to continue to cover you you. Um, Two types of malpractice are claims made and occurrence, know Mm -hmm. what those are and understand what your practice offers. And Um, there's no reason why you can't actually go and meet with that insurance agent because some students feel like, oh, I'm just going to like sign this and they know and they'll explain it to me. So, and I'll tell you that just from personal experience, it's really, really, really good to understand all of that um, because I did not at first. So making sure you can call that insurance agent and make an appointment, have a phone call. Um, don't be hesitant to do that. So insurance is one. I would want to know what other covered benefits there are. So is health insurance for myself or the family covered? What would be my portion? Some other things would be reimbursement for cell phone coverage, mm-hmm. mileage when you're on call, 
all of those different things that can add up and can be a really nice benefit. And they're probably paying them for the physician providers. And so getting that included. Continuing ed, very important. Continuing ed, making sure that you have, first of all, the time off and the reimbursement for continuing your education with um, whether it's conferences, whether it's, I mean, license, license stuff isn't cheap these days, especially if you're being licensed in a couple different states and then your APRN, um, uh, your midwifery, your RN, all of those um, every year, every two years. So making sure that they're covering those types of um, fees and dues, ACNM, if you'd like to be a part of ACNM, they'll cover that for you most times. My certificate maintenance was covered and my midwifery ACNM membership. Yes. We're both covered and that was separate from my CE money. Mm-hmm. I would say about CE, you have to have to make sure that it's enough to actually get somewhere. Right. And, and so something. I haven't seen the CE amounts increase um, over the last 10 years. I think they're just now starting to realize you can't go somewhere for a thousand or yeah. 1500. You're going to need more than that. I think that uh, like my practice gives me a lump sum and it's like, this is for licensing DEA continuing mm-hmm. ed. And it's a good enough amount of money that it allows me to do all those things. Mm-hmm. And so my DEA was $777 right. this year. I mean, good for three years, but so you divide that up over some amount of time and then that comes out, you know, equally, but so how do they break that up? Is it, you have a continuing education chunk and then they also pay for these parts of your licensure. But I will also say as an aside to this, not every practice is going to pay all your licensing mm-hmm. or pay your um, professional like expectations of your license or your certification. So again, on your list of things about finding the right job, these are things that you need to realize, like, is this a, a deal breaker for me? Right. And I've actually never been somewhere that I signed a contract, but these were all expectations and we had conversations about them beforehand. So I knew what I was, when I accepted the job, what I was accepting. You make a good point there, Kara, because a lot of times, or a lot of times offices, you know, exactly. You sit there, you go to dinner, you talk about all of it. You seem that it's all agreed. Um, make sure you feel okay about that because getting, asking for a contract is not, is not something that's... I mean, sometimes it we frowned upon, but um, it's important for you to make sure that you have it in writing and you're supported um, and it's, you know, notarized and you've seen, you know, an attorney that's seen it and that type of thing, because um, if things go bad and you need to get out of it or then that's, that's where you need that support. The one thing I did sign, I did not sign a contract, but I signed a non-compete clause. And so that can be interesting as well. When you decide to separate or leave your practice? Is there restrictions on where you can practice in the area afterwards? And there's plenty of people that are experts on that, just as you said, attorneys that are willing to look at agreements and that sort of thing, but definitely something to consider. And very commonly an expectation for professional providers. We talked about all of the things that we want in a contract as far as the present um, but let's think about the future because at some point we all want to retire. So make sure they have you got some type of retirement, something in there. And a lot of times they will, and you'll be a part of their retirement program with their practice or if it's a hospital um, position. So think about retirement too and what that kind of looks like. Are they going to contribute? What are you going to contribute? How much you can contribute? That type of thing as well. So the elephant in the room here is salary. Oh, mm-hmm. we haven't talked at all For about sure. that. No. And then <laughs> after we talk about salary, I think we should um, 
start talking a little bit about how to land your first job. Like we've talked a lot about what to look for, but then what kinds of things should like, what should outward we be looking like, how do we say like, Hey, I am the best candidate for this. And so let's talk about salary and then we'll go there. Sure. I think that's a great idea. So salary, how do you decide what is a good salary to be expecting? Mm -hmm. Knowing what you think you want to be paid, what do you ask for? (laughs) And that kind of conversation. Yeah. So the best advice I've ever gotten is whatever you want, add 20% and that's where you start. Because if you start high, Mm -hmm. there's always, you can always come down, but you don't want to start where you want to be and then end up coming down from that. You'll be unhappy. Yeah. So how do you decide what's normal in your area? Um, Recently, I had someone ask. And so I literally started with a Google search. Exactly. And I think it was like salary.com and a couple mm-hmm. of other things came up. And I was actually pretty impressed with how accurate the numbers were. It'll tell you a range and then the median typically. And knowing as a new grad, you're, you shouldn't expect the median, right? Like right. that's including all midwives with all levels of experience. Mm-hmm. So that yeah. can be a good first start. Yeah. And there's data on ACNM's website mm-hmm. about salary expectations. And there are some good publications about just midwifery in general, because I do feel like midwifery is different than some other advanced practice roles, just as, as, um, you know, CRNAs are different than midwives are different than NPs. We all have similar training, but we do different things. The liability is different. So I think that matters with salary. Agreed. And I think you can ask your faculty, you can ask your preceptors, and we probably need to get to a place where it isn't the culture that we keep that quiet. Like I think as Mm -hmm. women in particular, we've always been told not to talk about your salary. That's not polite. It's not a good thing to do. Let's make it more open and transparent. I agree, Kara. I believe that that is, that always has been that way. Oh, let's not talk about how much you make. I'm sorry I'm asking, but do you mind you telling me what you started? There's nothing wrong with that. Um, talk to maybe the the current providers in your practice. Like, what did you start um, making when you worked here? So that's, that is very important uh, to see. I think it's interesting because I'll be super transparent here. I came across like paycheck stubs from my very first practice. I I had a master's degree and no experience and I didn't have a salary. It was hourly. They paid us hourly at the hospital and I made like $40 an hour as in my very first midwifery job, which is no money because working night shift weekend option as an RN, as a charge nurse, I was making way more money than that. Um, and I think like, gosh, when you add all of that up, I mean, it was my first job and I got to do what I wanted to do, but I wasn't making what I was worth. I'll be transparent too. So my first job was in 2005 as a midwife, I'd been a labor nurse for, you know, quite a few years, but I started at $60,000 a year, which I is just like, Oh, I cringe now when I think about it. Um, but I was so happy to have a midwife job and, you know, the rates in our area now are significantly more than that. I would say most new grads in my area are making at least a hundred thousand. Yeah. Um, and so I'm so glad to see that the amount of pay has gone up, but I think they probably deserve even more than that. I think that pay can definitely be something that turns you onto a job or turns you off of a job. However, If you are in a position where you don't have to make $100,000 or $115,000 and you can afford to make 80 doing at a practice that you love, 
I don't necessarily always think that salary should be a deterrent. Agreed. I I completely agree. And a lot of it, we didn't really talk either about location. Where, where is it going to be? I'm where are we going to, where am I going to work? Am I going to have to get up and or get up? Am I going to have to um, get my family out of where their comfort zone is? Are we going to have to move and change schools for my kids and that type of thing? So location is key as well. Um, So you have to put all of that into, into perspective. And we talk about salary and that may be, yeah, what paycheck you bring home, what other benefits are going to be in that job? Um, is that retirement? That's a, that's a salary in itself. Uh, your license and all of the other perks that they give you, the, the cell phone, the mileage, that kind of stuff. Kind of think about, so when you add up what they give you all in one package, is that acceptable? Um, so that's important. When you talked about location, if I'm going to be moving my family, is there a relocation exactly. benefit? Yeah. Is there a retention? Maybe there's a sign-on bonus oh. as well. Yes. Um, I'm hearing more and more about those, which is awesome. And then maybe maybe it's a portion upfront for a sign-on, but if you stay for so many years, you get another bonus. And then the other thing we haven't talked about is loan repayment mm-hmm. and potential reimbursement for your educational costs. Yeah, that's very important too, Kara. We did not talk about that. And that is, that's a salary in itself because if you're going to be paying student loans off for the next 10 years and they're um, offering to help with some of that, that is, um, that's definitely a plus. And even if the practice won't pay for it, are you in a site that, you know, HRSA that would be a, a need area, yes. an underserved area, and you can qualify for some of the federal loan repayment, that mm-hmm. kind of idea that can be important. Mm-hmm. So we've talked a little bit about salary. The other thing that sometimes comes up is productivity. And is there the capability to make extra if I have seen a lot of patients, delivered a lot of patients, that sort of idea. And I would say I've seen as many different productivity models as there are midwives. I think every practice kind of does things a little bit differently, but I would expect as a new grad or a new midwife joining a practice, you really aren't making more productivity wise in that first year. It takes a while to build that up. I also love not working in a productivity based I would rather have a little bit higher salary than to worry about what my productivity is. I think for me, it takes away from the midwife experience. Mm-hmm. I spend a lot of time at the bedside and I spend a lot of time with my patients. So I may not see as many patients in the office, or I may not have as many patients that I deliver. I also think that sometimes productivity breeds some level of competition. Right. So in my practice, our productivity was evenly split amongst all of us. It wasn't down to the provider level. And we felt that was important because we didn't want to be making medical decision-making based on what we were going to earn. I didn't want to be inducing people because I wanted them to deliver when I was on that kind of idea. Right. So that that's very important that we kind of didn't talk about when it's something, what you're looking for in a practice, make sure you understand what you're expecting you're expected to see in the office. Um, I, you know, obviously worked with physicians where they're seeing 40 and 45 patients a day, um, sometimes even more. Um, please find out your, what you're expected to see because you don't, you're you don't want to do that. You know, midwives don't do that. And, and if you do, and they're, you're expected to, then you need to maybe um, scale that down a little because you, you're, you're going to be in charge of, of your template, like what your office template looks like, you know, whether you need to see patients every 10 or 15 minutes, do you get, you know, 20 or 30 minutes for a new patient or are they going to make it everybody be 15 minutes? So look at that. Um, and, and don't, don't be afraid to, to speak out and say, Hey, that's, that's really not what I want my schedule to look like. Um, cause that, 
they're working on productivity. Most physicians do. And um, like Missy said, uh, most midwives sometimes will not. I also know that in my current template, I see about 20 a day. And even for a midwife, I feel like that's a lot. Mm -hmm. Some days I wish I only had 12 or 15 because the amount of time I want to spend with them. Now, are there certainly visits where it doesn't take long? Patients don't have questions. I can run in and run out of rooms. Yes. But the majority of my patients are there because they want me and they want my advice. They want to ask me questions. They want to build relationship. And you can't do that when you see, I think 20 patients a day. My perfect would probably be that 15 to 16. I feel like I got to do teaching. I built relationships. I was still busy, which is so fun. And I love that mix of GYN and OB, but, um, it's pretty routine that I see a lot of midwives seeing 20, 25 easily in a day. So yeah, I think knowing those expectations is good. I think this has been a nice conversation about like what to look for, what you want, like some key bullet points when you're making your list. But what about landing that first job, especially as a new grad? What kinds of things can students do to make them, um, I guess, marketable? Well, I mean, I think one of the most important things is join your local affiliate and get to be around other midwives. Um, how they perceive you as a student can be so important. And then when you're in your clinical setting as a student, every day is a job interview. Um, I, I find that so many of my students are offered a job where they had their clinical experience. And so it's so important to be professional, to show up on time, to be eager and self-directed and really helpful. I agree, Kara. It's very important to you know, that first year of a job or something, you're going to be, you want, you want to make sure you're out there and you're doing that marketing market yourself. Because obviously with my positions, I was the first midwife. They had no idea what I was. They had no idea what I did, the community, the patients. Um, I would, I actually went to some of the schools and talked about midwifery care, um, to some of the high school students, uh, for one to, you know, maybe they would become patients, um, to, to let some of the, you know, those students know that we're going to be in nursing school, like what, what a midwife is and, you know, to build more midwives. Uh, so also just doing what you can to really market yourself and educate mm -hmm. your patients about what you are and what you do and what you can bring, um, to the practice and the practice will really, hopefully they will support that. Um, because obviously if anything you're bringing, you're bringing patients in. So, yeah. I think what Kara was talking about with like every day at clinical is a job interview. And my case of getting my very first job was every day of my life was a job interview right. because people would ask me that didn't know me. Well, what do you do? I'm like, well, I teach right now undergraduate nursing at UC, but I'm also a midwife and, you know, they get to know you. I used to take patients or I used to take students to clinical and the midwives that were working on that clinical unit, like got to know me and were talking about me. And that's actually word of mouth, how I got my first job. Those midwives sort of knew in the community that this other practice was looking for a midwife. And they were like, Hey, we're going to hook you up with this person. But if it wasn't for like the professionalism, the rapport that I built, like in this other thing that I was doing that made somebody think like, gosh, she'd be a great addition to this practice. Yeah. You know, the other thing is when you're a student, I, um, I'm in a, I'm program director of a program. I was a student at the same program. 
most of the students and myself worked throughout my entire educational process. And we have part-time students. And I know not every program does that and not every student can do that. But every one of those days was just like you said, Missy, people were learning about me going back to school, learning what midwives were. So every conversation I had with the physicians that knew me so well as a labor nurse was also talking about midwifery and my future. And so those are really important things as well. Yeah. I also think any additional things that you bring to a job, you should talk about as women, we are really, really terrible, uh, shitty even at Mm self-promotion. Yeah. Really bad at it. So let's talk about what some of those extra things would be. I think one of the easiest is if you can do a first assist class and do first assist for cesarean section, that is good revenue production, but it Mm -hmm. also can help the other providers in your practice. You could free up a physician to be able to go do another surgery or Mm -hmm. to see more patients in the clinic. And that can be a really nice sell. It's also beautiful continuity of care. Mm -hmm. If your labor patient ends up with the C-section. Your patients love that, that you're not like, okay. And they're like waving you by to this in the C-section room, and then you have to leave. So um, whatever presence you can have in that OR um, is very important. What are some of those other things? So a couple of things that I think of right off the bat, like do you have doula experience? Mm -hmm. I have, um, you know, at Emory where I'm teaching now, they have a volunteer doula program. A lot of our midwifery students are trained as doulas. Um, I think that's awesome for labor support. Mm -hmm. Um, An ultrasound certification. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I've been in practice now 16 years. I'm just now getting a national certification for ultrasound. I want to be able to scan my first trimester patients. Mm -hmm. I also want to be able to look for position in my third trimester patients. So there's an OB ultrasound certification for midwives. And I think that's a great addition. Childbirth educator too. Mm -hmm. So lots of midwife practices may offer the childbirth prep for that practice or do education. I would also say lactation. Yeah. Yeah. If you're a lactation consultant, you have time to do some of that training. I think that's another, a good one. Um, I also was trained by a group of my physicians to do circumcision and, you know, you can feel whatever way you want about that. But I also like that continuity of care that when I birth boy babies, I can say to the parents like, Hey, I can do his circumcision if that's what you choose. One that's also revenue as well. And, uh, very good for some of the relationship between physicians because I I also did circumcisions and that made my physician not have to come in on the weekends for boy babies. Um, So that was, that worked out really well for me. Uh, I didn't do that initially, Um, probably been in practice for about five years before I did that. But another one that can often be added, but you could come in saying, this is something I want to learn to do would be colposcopy. Mm -hmm. I know quite a few midwives do that and um, it's additional training. Yeah, I do my own colposcopies as well. And that feels like, again, I want to have any additional training that I can have that encourages continuity of care with Mm -hmm. my patients Mm -hmm. or also that allows my docs to do other things. Like if I can do a colposcopy and determine whether or not that patient needs a leap or just a repeat pap, that allows me to be a step that my physicians don't have to be involved in. Right. Yeah. Right. So, um, I mean, I know this sounds like a lot. We're not telling you to go out and like learn 10 new things, but even one additional skill that would set you apart from a another candidate. Yeah. Right. Another new grad even mm-hmm. for that matter. Yeah. Right. So how do you set yourself apart from other new grads? And I think what does your CV look like when you're a new grad? I think it's always really interesting, especially if you don't have any nursing experience, right? Your right. CV can be very like, uh, there's really nothing on here. 
Mm-hmm. Well, and if that was the case, I would highlight where you've had clinical experiences mm-hmm. and how many hours or how many different, I don't, I wouldn't drill down to the specifics of, I did this many pap tests, you know, or that sort of thing, but really it is about self-promotion and talking about all the experiences that you've had. And so I would highlight the clinical experiences you had in school on your CV as well. Yeah, I agree. Um, in a lot of, a lot of places that you use some type of system to track all of that, your hours, your, you know, your, some, some practices like to see, like, did you take care of patients with all different types of insurance and all that type of thing. So if you have a way to keep some of that tracking from your clinical experience, make sure that that is available if they ask for it. Yeah. Your nursing experience, if you have it should be highlighted there. You know, I think it's also interesting, like life experience kinds of things that are really important to highlight in your CV. Yeah. Do you speak another language? Oh, so important. Have you been immersed in another culture somehow? There's all kinds of life experience kinds of things that also I think can be highlighted on a CV. Mm -hmm. So those things feel really important. Yeah, absolutely. I do like the idea of the clinical hours piece. Like Mm -hmm. how many actual clinical hours did you do? How many patient encounters did you have as Mm -hmm. a student? I mean, those are things I would be looking for from a new grad. Yeah, I like to see a description of the clinical sites that they were at as well, because then it can tell you, were they in a federally qualified health center? Um, Were they in an academic practice? Were they in a small community? And actually that mix of all the different Mm -hmm. practice experiences makes a stronger candidate in my mind as well. Yeah. As another aside, my practice that I just started at recently wanted to see all my birth logs. Mm. And so if you haven't been tracking as a student, I would suggest that as soon as you graduate, you start tracking because some of them want to see what your experiences have been like. And for the first probably 10 or 15 years of my career, it was all on paper. So I brought my paper birth logs and I laid them on my physician's desk and I'm like, here you go. Let me know if you have any questions. But now I use birth tracks, which... um, is a pretty inexpensive, low-cost opportunity to do electronic tracking. It's HIPAA compliant. Um, it gives you all your statistics, your um, your primary C-section rate, your breastfeeding rate, your induction rate. Um, those kinds of things are nice, but again, an opportunity for you to track what you've been able to do. So I think that um, record keeping and keeping track is important. I want to make sure that we talk about that for a second. Was there anything else that you wanted to mention about landing that first job before we go to record keeping? Um, I guess my best advice about getting a job is like, don't ever try to be who you're not. And I think that is a, a, a pitfall for a lot of um, new grads. It's not gender specific, um, but you want a job so badly that you're willing to be somebody who you're not. And I think it's important to just know who you are, how you want to practice and what your intention is. Um, because if not, you'll be unhappy. Mm-hmm. I agree. Very true. Very, very true. Cause I've, I've done that. Yeah. So. We all sort of bend a bit, mm-hmm. but I don't want to be like gummy, you know, like bending so far that I feel like I'm going to snap in half because it's not who I am. Right. Right. So record keeping. Yeah. You mentioned that. I just want to put a quick little plug in here of for all of those different credentialing pieces and the licensure and your certification and getting a copy of your diploma, make copies and make them PDFs because you will be asked for them repeatedly Uh over and over and over again at every new job. At every time you go up for re-credentialing, make sure you keep copies of those. And back to what Amy said about your liability insurance, 
have a copy of that certificate. You need that face sheet of mm-hmm. your insurance coverage. So right. all of those are really important. And, and now as easy as things can be scanned with your phone yes. and turned into a PDF, there's no reason you shouldn't have all of those things. Be uh, organized. Another note is if you had to order official transcripts from a school, never just order one. Right. If you're going to do it, order three, they'll send them to you sealed keep them someplace where you're like, huh, I might need this transcript someday. Mm -hmm. Because I will tell you that a lot of schools are not fast about it. And it requires some amount of paperwork and faxing and paying for them. This last time I just was like, forget it. I'm ordering three transcripts from every school that I've been to. And I'm just going to put them in my file and then I'll always have them. I just think like, don't ever just order one of anything. As someone that is oftentimes filling out verifications for all of my graduates, I would also say, as you're wrapping up your schooling, you're a student, keep a copy of every syllabus. Do not throw them away. If you have them still electronically, put them in a file as well, because depending on if you move to another state you go out of the country, whatever it is, you're gonna need copies of those syllabi potentially for that other state board of nursing or that other country. And so- And the those. biggest ones are the three Ps, pharmacology, physical assessment, and pathophys. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the pharmacology is the one with prescriptive privilege that gets particularly sticky. Yeah, I had someone though that recently, one of my graduates from probably 10 years ago is wanting to go to New Zealand. She needed literally every single syllabi and I was able, I was able to pull them for her, but it took us a couple of weeks to get everything together. Yeah. It really can take a period of time. So, um, but yeah, the record keeping thing, but so important. Is there anything else that you're thinking like closing thoughts, like getting your first job, looking for the kind of job you want to have things that you're like, Oh, what feels good and what doesn't. I think we've hit on a lot of different things, but I think your takeaway message of knowing yourself, knowing what you're looking for, knowing what you can bring to a practice is really, really important and not changing yourself so much that you're trying to make yourself what someone else wants, but that it's actually finding a good fit between the two. I agree, Kara. I think that um, it may not be ideal. It may not be like your dream job, but know yourself, know what you can bring because you can bring midwifery anywhere. It may not be, you know, the, the labor sitting, the natural birth, the, you know, all the things that go with midwifery, you can still bring that in a practice that has a 98% epidural rate and a very medical environment. You can still bring midwifery there and change the life of some of those women that may not had or have ever, ever had that opportunity. Yeah. Gosh, I haven't heard the word labor sitting in so long. I'm like, it feels so nice. It does. I love that, like, those that choice of words, labor sitting. Um, My, I think, parting advice is if something doesn't feel good, I really believe strongly in gut feeling. Everybody has some sort of intuition and how it manifests in your body is different. (laughs) For me, it's this deep-seated burn in my gut when something doesn't feel right. Um, Listen to that. If you're in a job interview or you're looking at a job or you're talking to somebody about a job and something just doesn't feel right, it's probably because something's not right. And so it's just trusting yourself to not fall right into, you know, a bad situation. And I will always tell in any situation, any person that I know, my sisters, my friends, my family is that you need to have trusted advisors, people outside of just your spouse or your partner 
who you can really bounce things off of. Um, I call them truth tellers in my life. I have a set of truth tellers that I know I can call and they're going to tell me exactly what they think. And when I don't listen to my truth tellers is when things go downhill. Right. I was thinking the exact same thing as you were talking, Missy, of who are those people that are the ones that will be brutally honest with Mm -hmm. you and don't always tell you what you want to hear, but give such good advice. And even if it's just letting you talk about those intuitions and gut feelings and helping you find the truth there. Big shout out to my friend, Francie, who has been my like truth teller recently about clinical practice. So I think we all have those people. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely. So, well, thanks for joining us today. We're really excited to have Amy joining us on our team and we're excited about season three. We've got some exciting topics planned for you. And uh, if you want to learn more about the new products that we have and definitely about coming to join us at Navarre Beach, be sure to look on our website. And if you have topics you'd like to hear about, make sure you let us know. Yeah. Find us on social.